0: Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from Farnham U3A History Group. In this talk, we hear about Darwin and evolution from Sam Osmond. Part A Well, you may wonder why I'm talking about Darwin. Uh, The reason is that I only really have one job now, and that is as a guide at Westminster Abbey. And we receive thousands of visitors every day. And every famous Briton you can think of is either buried or commemorated there. And I've often wondered, who is the most famous Briton in the world? Now, you may say, well, Shakespeare. But we have visitors from Paraguay or Korea who probably never heard of Shakespeare. The same is someone like Winston Churchill or Henry III or Henry VIII. But there's one or maybe two men who everybody's heard of and the most important one I think is Darwin. Even if somebody comes from Paraguay or Mongolia they've heard of Darwin and they'd like to see where he's buried. The only possible rival is Newton also a great scientist, possibly a much more uh, broadly based scientist. But Darwin wrote in clear English, which ordinary people can understand, and he has been translated into 30 different languages. So everybody, wherever they are in the world, has heard of Darwin. In England, of course, he appears on our ten pound note, and quite rightly, he dominates the Natural History Museum, sitting in the main Hall. Now, I propose to divide this talk into two parts. Uh, First of all, before the break, to describe his life. And secondly, uh, after the break, I hope we can have a discussion of his ideas and their impact since his death. To begin with his life, uh, he was born on the 12th of February, 1809, the same date as arguably the most famous American, Abraham Lincoln. He came from a distinguished family one of his grandfathers was Erasmus Darwin, who was a leading figure in the Enlightenment movement and the founder of the Birmingham Lunar Society. His maternal grandfather was Josiah Wedgwood, who had made a fortune through his pottery business. Both the Darwin and the Wedgwood families were prosperous and free-thinking. They were Unitarians, which I think means belief in one God rather than the Trinity. And they intermarried over several generations but sadly Charles's mother died when he was eight and he was quite a sweet little boy and he was looked after and educated by his sisters until the age of 12 had two older sisters who dated on him his father was a prosperous doctor in Shrewsbury uh, but he was also a very keen botanist and he filled the house their house with plants now his father wanted his son also to be a doctor. So he sent him off to Edinburgh to study medicine. At what better place, you might say. But in fact, Charles never really liked studying medicine, although he quite liked Edinburgh. While he was there, he learned not only a bit about medicine, but more importantly, things like taxidermy, stuffing animals and birds, and natural history. Knowing that he didn't like medicine, his father rather exasperated, and sent him off to Cambridge, to Christ College, Cambridge, with the intention that he should become a clergyman, the other respectable profession for, for men of his class. But at Cambridge, again, Charles became more interested in other things. He became very interested in entomology. Beetle collecting was a great craze at the time, and he built up quite a collection. He also again became interested in botany, not surprisingly, due to uh, his, his home background. One of his friends and teachers was Professor Henslow, who was Professor of Botany and Vicar of Little St Mary's. He also developed a special interest in geology and accompanied Professor Sidgwick to do geological research in Worms. Eventually, he got a degree, an ordinary degree, not an honours degree, and still really didn't know what he wanted to do, except that he was quite sure he didn't want to go to the church. And at this time, an extraordinary stroke of luck occurred, which really changed his whole life. In his biography, he says, this is by far the most important event in my life and has determined my whole career. This was his appointment as a naturalist on the, uh, the Beagle, which turned him from an aimless, pleasant young man into a great international scientist. He didn't actually form his ideas on evolution uh, during the voyage, but he had the dedication and intellectual curiosity to do a great deal of research. The Beagle, uh, not a particularly big ship, but it was a Royal Naval survey ship under command of the newly promoted Captain Fitzroy. Now Fitzroy himself was only 26, and yet he was captaining this boatboat. But Fitzroy did have experience of survey work previously in South America. The the boat was commissioned for a two-year voyage to complete a survey of the coast of Brazil and Argentina. But in fact, it was extended to to last a full five years. And it was thought that an experienced naturalist and geologist would be an asset of the boat, which should not be just concerned with uh, geographical surveys. It would also be a companion for Captain Fitzroy. Now, of course, there were many better qualified men than Charles Darwin, but none of them were available. But one of them, Professor Henslow, suggested Darwin, in some ways, he was really a rather an odd choice, because um, he wasn't particularly well qualified. He'd only just graduated with an ordinary degree. He was only 22. And his father said it would be a complete waste of time for him. But father was persuaded by another relative to let him go. And he had to pay, father had to pay for the, for the passage. So young Darwin could leave at any time if he wished. The voyage was intended to last for just two years, but in fact it was extended to cross the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. It actually lasted for five years. The Beagle had 50 seamen and five officers commanded by Captain Fitzroy. So it wasn't a big boat. And Darwin had to share a cabin, although he actually had his own room as a library. In the whole voyage of five years, Darwin actually spent more time on land than at sea, which was just as well, because he was always appallingly seasick. Often he was away for several days, riding across the Pampas or exploring forests. He keenly studied the naturalist Humboldt, the German naturalist Humboldt, and he was enchanted by his first encounter with tropical forests. Both Fitzroy and Darwin were very interested in geology and had with them volume one, which had just been published, of Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology. Darwin's own special interest was Marine Invertebrates, which uh, translates as barnacles. <laughs> but, uh, you might think that's not all that relevant, but His intellectual curiosity led him to study everything. And during the voyage, he made a a habit, and was very punctilious in labeling and preserving specimens of insects, birds, fossils, stones, rocks, plants. Every time they came to a major port, he would stuff them into a barrel and send them off to his friend, Professor Henslow, in Cambridge. Now, it was an extensive voyage. Let me just show you their, their route. Uh, they began by going down the coast of South America, and that was their main, their main uh, uh, objective, uh, right down as far as the Falklands. And as I said, he was keenly interested in everything. He took copious notes. He collected thousands of specimens of birds and animals and fossils. In Brazil, where they went first, he hated slavery, uh, unlike uh, Fitzroy, who defended it. He also detested the slaughter of native Indians. At the southern tip of Argentina, he met possibly the most primitive race on earth, the Fuegians. They actually had three Fuegians with them uh, who'd been taken away three years earlier. And one of them, Jeremy Button, they released back to his people. And they noticed within a few days, he became completely acclimatized. He'd thrown off all his clothes and become a true Fuegian. They also had a missionary with them, who was intended to convert the Fuegians. But uh, within a few days, he'd been robbed and beaten up and was forced to retire. And the race of Fuegians is, is now, I should say, extinct, but they were the most primitive race on earth. And so, of a certain interest to Darwin, who was studying the whole business of, of human development. In fact, of course, Darwin was interested in everything. Uh, they went round Cape Horn, up the coast of Chile, and then. Rather significantly, they went to the Galapagos Islands. They are um, a group of islands formed by volcanoes uh, uh, more or less on the equator. Some of the volcanoes are so semi-active. And they are full of the most extraordinary wildlife. A lot of huge tortoises and blue-footed boobies. Birds were almost tame. Iguana lizards and all the most extraordinary animals you can think of. I would strongly recommend, if you haven't been there and you like looking at wildlife, that is the best place in the world to go. Darwin, of course, studied all the wildlife and the geology. He was interested in the idea of volcanic islands appearing in in the mid-ocean. He was interested in volcanoes. He was interested in earthquakes, things which he'd never experienced before in Britain, And he took, as I say, copious notes. After the Galapagos, Uh, they went across to Tahiti where he got a more favourable view of of less developed uh, races. After Tahiti they went to the Cocos Islands where he studied and was particularly interested in the development of coral islands in the ocean. After that they crossed the Indian Ocean and they went to New Zealand, Australia, Cape Town. And then in Cape Town they went back again to South America to further refine the surveys which Fitzroy had done three years earlier, but the Beagle finally returned after five years at sea. It was fated. It was a great event in British history. At that stage, Darwin had a huge job to analyze his collections of plants and birds and rocks and fossils, and he also had to meet publishers' deadlines for his many books, including one book which was quite a bestseller and which I think is is very readable even now, and that is his account of the voyage of the Beagle. It's very readable, uh, not super scientific, and it became, uh, rightly, a a bestseller in in, in Britain very quickly when it was published in 1839. He himself, apart from this, concentrated on writing up the geology of the area, and he left others like Professor Henslow and Hooker and Gould to classify and analyze his plants and animals and fossils. In 1850, Charles Lyell, whose book on geology had fascinated him and Fitzroy, uh, persuaded him to become Secretary of the Geological Society. Now, the immense periods of time in geology were very important in his thinking because they inspired him his theory of gradual evolution. Another source of inspiration was Malthus's Essay on Population, which had been first published about 40 years earlier, in 1798, but it prompted in Darwin's mind the thought of all creatures struggle for survival, in which many more individuals of each species are born than can possibly survive. And in this way, new species are formed by favorable variations. All this work, it wasn't a work, it brought on illness. And he was as chronic invalid for the rest of his life. He suffered from vomiting, nausea, eczema, lassitude. People have speculated on what he was really wrong with him. At the time, they could never really find out. And since then, a lot of medical experts have, have speculated. One possibility is he contracted a thing called Chagos disease while he was in South America. In the attempt to get better, he visited many times the spa of Malvern, and he also came several times to Moor Park here in Farnham for hydrotherapy. He believed that the, that the water was of very good quality, and the hydrotherapy involved endless coal showers and that sort of thing, which he hoped would do him good. A- another solution for him was deciding whether or not to marry, and there's a strange document written in his own hand in the Cambridge University Library, which is headed to marry or not to marry. And Let me just read you out some of this, which may be familiar to, to many of the men here. Um, he says, to marry, uh, to, to have children, if it please God, constant companion, a friend in old age who'll be interested in me, an object to be loved and played with, Better than a dog, anyway. <laughs> a home and someone to take care of the home. The charms of music and female chit-chat. These things are good for one's health, but a terrible loss of time. <laughs> My God, it's intolerable to think of spending life uh, like a new to be working, working, and nothing afterwards. No, it would be much better to uh, picture oneself with a nice soft wife on a sofa with a good fire and books and music, perhaps. Well, that was one side of the equation. The other side, he has got to marry. Freedom to go where one likes, choice of society, and as much or as little of it as one wants. The conversation of clever men at clubs, not forced to visit relatives and bend in every trifle, not to have the expense and anxiety of children possibly quarrelling, loss of time, cannot read in evenings, fatness and idleness, anxiety and responsibility, less money for books etc, and more children forced to get one's bread. Well, after this debate with his own self at some length, he decided in the end that he should marry, and he proposed to uh, another Wedgwood, his first cousin, Emma Wedgwood, in November 1838, and they married two two months later, in January 1839. She was a good wife, she looked after him devotedly, and they had ten children. But not all of them were healthy because, remember, Charles and Emma were first cousins. In 1842, they decided to move out of London to Down House in Kent. It's now open as an English heritage property, and, and it's well worth a visit. And Darwin did most of his thinking, walking round and round a gravel which he called the Walk, around the outside of the garden. And afterwards, after each long walk, he retired to his study, uh, where he began to start to write up his thoughts. He was too sick to socialise widely, but he had enormous correspondence with people uh, around the world. And Prime Minister Gladstone even came to visit him at Down House. Eventually, after many years, uh, his great achievement came in November 1859 with the publication of, I'm sure you've guessed it, The Origin of Species. This is a rather more substantial book. It is quite readable, but it's quite long. It was an enormously important book, possibly one of the most important books ever written in, in English. And the main theme was that all life on earth has evolved from one common ancestor different species of slight variants which survive more successfully. The theory really is quite a simple one, really in two parts. First of all, that in each generation there may be certain variants, certain very slight variants born. And secondly, that there is the law of the survival of the fittest. And the variants which survive more successfully tend to reproduce again and again and again. Over thousands of generations, they can form an entirely different species. Well, Darwin didn't pretend that his, his theory didn't have its problems. He still felt he was right. Uh, one of the things which influenced his mind was the Galapagos finches, which he'd seen on the islands. Now, uh, there are about ten Galapagos islands, and each of them has quite a distinctive ve- ve- vegetation, animal life. And he noticed that some finches had long, sharp beaks for poking into crevices. Others had short beaks for crushing seeds. And yet they were all part of the same species, but they were developing in different directions. I mentioned earlier that really a major item in his thinking was the immensity of geological time. Well, about four and a half billion years ago, as far as we know, the world was formed. After another billion years, we can find the first signs of life in in rocks. And that life is bacteria. And then, not until the Cambrian explosion, uh, about um, three billion years later, do we find the first plants and animals appearing, uh, mostly in in the oceans. And then, between five and ten million years ago, the first identifiable human ancestors, ancestors of humans and apes, now, arguably, uh, Origin of Species was the most influential book of all time. But the images were not entirely unique. There was another naturalist called Alfred Russell Warris, who had done much research and collecting in Brazil while Darwin was, was travelling. Alas, all his specimens were lost in a fire on the ship which brought them back to England. But then he went out again to the East Indies, where again, he studied and collected uh, animal life. Like Darwin, he was a close friend of Hooker. And in June 1858, he sent an outline of, of his theory of evolution via natural selection to Darwin. And Darwin quickly realized that this was so similar to his own ideas that he, Darwin, must publish and he decided to do this jointly with Wallace in the journal of the Linnaean Society, that is the leading natural history society in, in Britain. After the publication of Origin in the following year, others also said they thought of, of uh, evolution and natural selection, including a man called Patrick Ma- Matthew, who claimed he'd written about it in 1831 in an article about timber. Now, the scientific world came to accept Darwin's theory of evolution. It wasn't so extraordinary that mankind might be related to the apes. A century earlier, the great Swedish uh, taxonomist uh, Linnaeus had classified homo sapiens, his phrase, uh, as in the same family as apes. But there are so many gaps in the fossil evidence, missing links, you might say, to support the evolution of all life from a common ancestor. It's one of those concepts like which, like religion, requires a certain amount of faith. And the missing link between humans and apes is still debated. where our closest ancestors are chimps or gorillas or orangutans? Or Some Christians accepted his theory, but for others it contradicted the Bible and undermined the whole of Christianity. In July 1860, there was a famous debate at Oxford, which was widely reported In fact, Darwin was ill, and Wallace was still in the East Indies. But they were represented by Professor T.H. Huxley and the botanist Dr. Hooker. On the other side, the Christian creationists, as they were called, were represented by Bishop Samuel Wilberforce, and also by Professor Richard Owen, who had inspected Darwin's fossils in South America, and argued that humans had so much larger brains than apes that they could not possibly be descended from them. Also on the gracious side was Admiral Fitzroy, now an Admiral, but he had been captain of the Beagle, and he knew uh, Darwin well. There was quite a fuss at the time, because Bishop Wilberforce, who was known as Soapy Sam by Disraeli, because of his habit of wringing his hands whenever he made a speech, he tried to uh, ridicule Darwin's theory by asking Huxley which of his grandmothers Was an ape? Well, Huxley replied very swiftly that he did not mind being descended from an ape, but he would have hated to be descended from a clever man who used his great talents to obscure the truth. Now, in fact, Sophie Sam is made out to be rather a fool, but he was actually a fellow of the Royal Society and was not far off the mark in describing Darwin's theory of evolution as a hypothesis which lacked comprehensive proof. Uh, the debate, of course, sparked uh, a lot of publicity and, and, and uh, a lot of cartoons. Darwin had been very careful not to directly address the origin of humans in the origin of a species, because he knew what a furore it would cause. But he ended the book saying, I see no good reason why the views in this volume should shock the religious feelings of anyone. A celebrated author and divine has written to me that it's just as noble a conception of the deity to believe that he created few forms capable of development into other forms, as to believe that he required a fresh act of creation to supply the voids caused by the action of his laws. And the final paragraph of the book reads uh, as follows. There is a grandeur in this view of life, having been originally breathed by the creator into a few forms or into one from so simple a beginning Endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. So he hoped there wouldn't be too much fuss about origin of species, but there was. And twelve years later, in 1871, he published another book called The Descent of Man, which was much more specific about human evolution. He demonstrated the similarity between the embryos of all animals, for example, and the similar bone structure of hands and flippers and wings. The following year, he published another book, The Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals. This further offended Christians by arguing, first of all, that morality was inspired by nature, not religion. He gave examples of unselfish behaviour among animals, sharing food, warning of predators, cooperation between members of a family. Secondly, he argued that human emotions were very similar to the emotions of apes, which he had studied in great detail. And finally, that the idea of God might have developed from features of the human mind. So as you can imagine, this very much offended many Christians. His his last book was about earthworms, which involved much research at Downhouse, including playing a variety of music, piano music, violin music, to earthworms to see if they were able to hear. It is rather typical of his, his methodology that he did a lot of research on a lot of different subjects. Sadly, or remarkably perhaps, he was given no honours until the age of 68 in 1877, when Cambridge awarded him an honorary doctorate. And at that point, fractures uh, lowered an effigy of a monkey from the balcony above in the Senate House uh, to roars of applause. But by this time, he'd become rather depressed. And he relied very much on his son Francis, who had studied medicine, like his father, but actually was more interested in botany. He was also uh, very much saddened by the obsession of his friend Alfred Wallace with spiritualism and seances, and also with the fact that uh, Wallace, who lived much longer than him, uh, was nearly, nearly going bankrupt, and Charles Darwin uh, helped him uh, uh, to, to solvency. So Darwin, in his last years, was really a very depressed man, and he died in April 1882 of a heart problem, possibly related to the Chagos disease, which had haunted him for the previous 40 years. He'd expected to be buried in Downing Church, near Downing House, but uh, there was a massive public petition uh, led by members of the Royal Society, and this uh, demanded that he should be buried in Westminster Abbey, and he lies there today, next door to Newton, the other great scientist of his day. Right, that is really all I have to say about Darwin's life. Um, I was going to lead on, after the the coffee break, to Darwin's ideas. I will start on this now. When discussing Darwin's ideas, which we will do mainly after uh, the break, I've really divided it into four parts. And, as we have a bit of time, I'll start on Darwinism and Christianity. I've spoken quite a lot about that already, But it really is a very important aspect of his theory of evolution because it changed mankind's view of itself in Britain and every other Christian country. Well, as I mentioned earlier, he saw natural selection as the key to evolution. And he argued that since offspring tend to vary slightly from their parents, mutations that make an organism better adapted to its environment will be encouraged and developed by the pressures of natural selection, leading to the evolution of new species, differing widely from one another and from their common ancestor. This is really the key part of his theory of evolution, which has enormous ramifications. And the first one I want to talk about, really, is Darwinism and Christianity. As you can imagine, it was a major challenge to the Bible. In 1859, most people believed in the Bible as being the absolute truth. Although some doubts have been raised earlier in the century and indeed in the 18th century, Lyell's uh, books on geology indicated the earth was much older than 5,000 years, which the Bible indicated. But there was still a strong belief that God had created all creatures in their present form. In in other words, there was no such thing as evolution. And today, um, half, I believe, something like half of all Americans Believe that God had no involvement in evolution. And one could debate this sort of thing, a fundamental Christianity, belief is belief in the soul. Now, at what stage did mankind acquire a soul in, in its gradual evolution uh, from, uh, from the eighth family? And, and Christians also dislike Darwin's assertion that morality depended on instinct, a selfish gene, you might call it, uh, rather than religion, because most Christians believed that Christianity was a fundamental part of morality. Now Darwin himself, it's interesting to see how his own religious beliefs involved. Uh, he was born and brought up as a Unitarian, as a straightforward Christian. And he married a really devout Christian, uh, Emma. But after the death of his daughter Annie in 1851, at uh, the age of 12, Darwin swore he would never set foot in the church again because he and Emma had prayed for Annie's health and still she died. Emma, as I said, was herself a devout Christian and Darwin didn't want to upset her, although she loyally read through the proofs of his books, in particular the origin of species. She begged him to accept that not everything could be scientifically proved. Darwin himself's own beliefs, I think, uh, evolved, if I could use that word again. Um, He began as a straightforward Christian unitarian, and later on he especially after the death of his daughter Annie, his belief in God dwindled. And at the end of his life, he called himself an agnostic, but not an atheist. He's definitely not an atheist. And he is, of course, buried in Westminster Abbey. Then you might argue that many people who weren't very good Christians were buried in the Abbey. The extreme view of, of, of Christians who opposed him We call creationism. Um, Most people accept it. Most Christians today accept Darwin's theory of evolution. But I still meet Americans who, as an article of religious faith, do not believe in Darwinism. These are Americans who visit the Abbey, and I show them the grave of Darwin, and they say, why on earth is he here? They believe that the world was created in its present form, but it's not evolved. And all animals or humans exist in the form in which they were originally created by God. They are, you've you probably heard there's been a lot of controversy about creationism in the United States. And a number of southern states have actually ruled in its favor. And today there are 50 creationist museums in the United States. A recent one I was reading about in Kentucky cost over $27 million and features all the features you might find in the Bible, such as Noah's Ark, and humans coexisting with dinosaurs, and everything, just as the Bible told. There's also, in fact, a creationist museum in Norwich in England, and another in Australia, and another in Portugal. So, although to all of us Darwin's theory of evolution is totally believable, there are a significant number of people in the world who disbelieve in it. The views expressed by the speaker are not necessarily the same as those held by the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. This podcast is produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group.